0: Welcome to the Mission Matters podcast, celebrating the people and initiatives that embodied the Jesuit tradition of St. Louis University, celebrating what matters in the two hundred year old plus mission that is St. Louis U. Brought to you
1: from the Office of Mission and Identity.
0: So, welcome back to Mission Matters podcast. We are joined today by John Wade. The Archivist Emeritus at Pius Library. Good morning, Virginia. It's wonderful to have you back again, John. For those who might not know it, we had a John Wade-specific podcast (laughs) during the COVID months. So those are called Wednesdays with Wade. They are an overview of some of the intriguing aspects of Slew's history. So... Mm -hmm. Don't miss those. Go ahead to our Mission Matters podcast channel and click on those. They're still archived. They're still there for your enjoyment. But today, we are welcoming you back so that we can celebrate well, prepare to celebrate well, SLU's birthday.
1: That's right. Three years ago now, the university celebrated its bicentennial for 1818. And although we we certainly talked about the first classes, We never made a big enough deal out of that first class, so we'll talk about that.
0: That's great. So, Jen, I'm just going to set you loose on these stories. Tell us whatever you'd like to tell us about how we might best celebrate 203.
1: Well, the first classes for the university in 1818, it was called St. Louis Academy. Within a few years, it would be called St. Louis College, and then eventually, when the Jesuits took over in 1829, Father Verhagen, who was the first Jesuit president of the school, got incorporation as a, as a university. But the academy was actually founded uh, in 1818. And Bishop Louis William De Burg came upriver to St. Louis at that time, 1818, and he eventually would create a cathedral church here on the riverfront in St. Louis, not too far from where the old cathedral is now. And he had several ideas when he came here, one of which was to provide for education for young men in, in the St. Louis area. So in October of 1818, he placed an advertisement in the Missouri Gazette newspaper, and the headline of the advertisement was simply education. I want to read just a little bit here from this Education advertisement, and it says that it was both in English and in French. The Reverend Mister Niel, well, he was a Catholic priest, not a Jesuit, who came with De Burg, and I shouldn't mention that De Burg was not a Jesuit himself. The Reverend Mister Niel, assisted by three other clergymen, under the auspices and superintendence of the Right Reverend Bishop, will open on the sixteenth November next in the house of Mrs. Alvarez, Church Street an academy for young gentlemen, $12 per quarter, payable in advance. And the parents were asked to provide books and stationery for their student. And each pupil had to have, quote, a bag to bring in and carry out his books, for the eventual loss of which the masters do not hold themselves accountable. And then at the end of the ad, they said, none will be received before he can read at least tolerably well. DeBerg was a bit of a... uh, Oh, he was a bit of a dreamer. He had an idea, but he never really thought through, how am I going to, to implement all this? So he had this idea for this school, but when he put this ad in the paper in October 23rd of 1818, and he was planning on opening this school November 16th, which is, what, three weeks, four weeks away? Right. He didn't know for sure whether he was going to have anybody show up,
0: did he have a faculty?
1: He well, he had Father Niel, okay. and then there were two other priests, and then he had a, uh, a seminarian at the time, and so there were three priests that he, uh, three other faculty that he had. But Father Niel was was the primary member of the faculty; he was in charge of the, in charge of the school, and so they did on November the sixteenth. Uh, evidently, approximately forty students showed up. It was a start for the school, and in the second year, there was another notice, this time from Father Niel in the Gazette, and it, in that second notice, they had a mission statement for the school, and, and Father Niel wanted to assure all the parents that their confidence had been well-placed, and this was something that Father Niel had written. He says in this, in this second year's advertisement, The moral and literary imp- improvement of the pupils, a due sense of religion, the foundation of all morality... Was the first goal uh, for this for the school? I, I mean, such a, a statement would be, I think, a goal of any school, even even in the twenty first century. So that was that that first school, and and it never did. I mean, it struggled. And one of De Berg's ideas, in addition to you know founding this school, is he was also looking for someone to help teach languages to Native American children, the Osage. Nation was throughout Missouri, and including many here in the St. Louis area, and so he had in the back of his mind uh, that he wanted to have Jesuit priests come to St. Louis to help teach Native Americans and so eventually, through de Berg's intercession, the Jesuits eventually were invited to come to St. Louis with the initial purpose to teach English and other subjects, uh, although de Berg always had in the back of his mind. Well, maybe they can help out with with my academy. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I want to I want to get this right. So, November of eighteen eighteen is when St. Louis Academy right. opens right. with right. approximately 40, forty students. Forty students, right? Right. Under the sponsorship of Bishop De Burg, de Burg. but with Father
1: Niel, Father
0: yeah. Niel right. as headmaster,
1: president, whatever. I'm not I'm not sure what All you right. would call him. Right.
0: And it opened in a. Residence? Yes, it opened in
1: yeah, and in this house which was on Church Street, down near the gateway arch, the old cathedral where that is now.
0: Why I find that so fascinating. So as we're celebrating this year, the five hundredth anniversary of Ignatius getting hit by the cannonball when he started he was in the home of a Spaniard, given hospitality by a Spanish noblewoman, if I'm not mistaken. So I love that sluice history starts
1: Yeah, I never, in a I, never way. I never I never thought about that, but yeah, Eugenio Alvarez had been an officer in the Spanish government. Obviously, when Jefferson we purchased Louisiana from the French after the French and Indian War, which ended in, in 1763, the Spanish took over what was Louisiana territory, and then eventually the Spanish sold it back to Napoleon and the French. And then it was Napoleon and the French who, who sold it to the United States in uh, in 1803. We talk about you know six flags over mid-America. Well, one of the six flags, which a lot of people don't realize, was the Spanish flag. Spain had uh, had possession of what was St. Louis. Over time, De Berg left St. Louis, and then Rosati came in as his coadjutor. Uh, when De Berg came back, it was. Probably eighteen twenty six, and maybe I should back up. But the Jesuits came in eighteen twenty three. De Berg had given them property on a farm that he owned out in what's now Florissant, Missouri. Well, they set up a seminary to teach their own students, you know, philosophy and theology. But they also set up this school for Native Americans, uh, Saint Regis. And so, the Jesuits were teaching Native American boys out there, uh, in De Berg's school was still in operation down on the, on, the, on the riverfront. But over time, the number of students, it was fluctuating, and de Burg, when he came back, he was somewhat discouraged. And from what I've read is de Burg was almost ready to say, maybe we should close the school down. Ironically, some of the parents of the young men at de Burg's academy asked the Jesuits, because they knew the Jesuits were operating in Florissant, they asked them whether they would mind teaching some of their their young their boys, their young men, and so some of the young men who were down at, at the school down near the riverfront went out to Florissant and the Jesuits taught them out there. Now, there's been some controversy, disagreement among historians uh, of the university. Well, I don't know whether you can really say St. Louis University started in 1818. There was a period when there was no, there were no classes taught. I don't think we're we're stretching things too much to say that the the education was continuous from when De Burg started in November of 1818 at his little school until the Jesuits took over in 1829, and they built their own campus down at Ninth and Washington downtown. It's
0: just they, the location. The location wasn't was,
1: cha- and and there there were young men from De Berg's Academy College who were being taught. At Florissant, and then the Jesuits eventually built their own campus down at Ninth and Washington. So there was continuous education. As I mentioned earlier, the Jesuits eventually Father Verhagen was the, became the president, uh, and then in 1832 Verhagen applies for and receives a charter from the state of Missouri. And it, we are the first university, college university west of the Mississippi, but certainly the first to receive a, a, a government a government charter. Uh, which was really kind of extremely forward-thinking at the time, that they anticipated, well, it would be to our benefit to have official sanction of the the government of the state of Missouri. Remember, Missouri Mm -hmm. celebrating its 200th anniversary this year. Missouri had only been, became a state 11 years prior to Verhagen receiving the, uh, the charter. So
0: I guess my question is, so among the Jesuit universities... In the United States, was Slew one of the first?
1: Georgetown had been founded in 1789. The Jesuits were formally suppressed, right. and they were not reactivated until the 19th century. So, technically, there were no Jesuits in 1789 when Georgetown was founded, but right. it was founded by a former Jesuit. So, we are the second, St. Louis College, St. Louis University is the second Jesuit school next to Georgetown.
0: I love that. So I just want to make sure I have this sure. straight. So Bishop de Burgh had been, you said, president of Georgetown? He had been Georgetown? president of
1: Georgetown for a short period of time in right. the 1790s, right?
0: So Archbishop Carroll is the Bishop of Baltimore, and he's a former Jesuit. He's
1: a former Jesuit, right.
0: De Burgh is the president of Georgetown. De Burgh is not a Jesuit. He's
1: a Sulpician Sol- a father, right? Okay.
0: okay. And then de Burgh comes to St. Louis. Well, he comes to New Orleans first. New right. Orleans first, right. then St. Louis. Right initiates what will become St. Louis University. Right, right. And is de Burgh the one responsible for inviting the Jesuits to take mm-hmm. over? Right.
1: Yeah, DeBerg, actually, I think Rosati was technically, but de Burgh always had that in the back of his mind. Certainly de Burgh was responsible for inviting the Jesuits to come to Missouri in 1823. And that's when the the Jesuits and there were, I guess, 16 people in their in their party left from White Marsh, Maryland, and then they, they walked across the Cumberland Gap in the mountains to Wheeling, Virginia, uh, now West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then they took a flatboat down the Ohio River from Wheeling, Virginia, and down the Ohio River. And then they, they got off of their flatboats near where Shawneetown, Town, Illinois is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they literally walked across southern Illinois uh, and then ended up uh, end of May of 1823, here on the St. Louis Riverfront. Uh, now they knew at the time when they were making this journey that De Burg had obviously invited them, and that he had he he had this farm property in Florissant for them. So they weren't just coming out here blind. But right. having said that, they didn't have many assurances as to what what they were going to encounter.
0: Wow, what a great story. Yeah. So I love thinking that De DeBerg, familiar yes. with upper education by the Jesuits right. in the Baltimore, D.C. area, right. Right. would have gotten to St. Louis eventually and said, I want something like that here.
1: Right. Yeah. And initially he, he was going to do it, you know, without the Jesuits, although he was resourceful enough that I'm sure he thought if I get them to come here to teach Native Americans, he would probably be willing, you know, to take over. Uh, the school, but I think that's what a lot, a lot of St. Louis, the university community, doesn't realize that the original purpose for the Jesuits coming to Missouri was not to start a school, right? Because there was a school already here. It was to work as missionaries a, a Native Americans. and when and specifically the Osage. Well, the Osage here in in Missouri, and eventually, I mean, the, the Jesuits worked with the Potawatomi, uh, and then Father Desmet. In the eighteen thirties, and the forties, he goes up what eventually the Oregon Trail all the way to Oregon, and worked with uh, various Native American tribes all up and down what became the uh, the Oregon the Oregon Trail. And so, so yeah, we're coming up. November the sixteenth is the two hundred third anniversary of our first classes. I know our students probably don't want to hear about what was it twelve, $12 dollars per a quarter, twelve dollars per quarter payable in in advance. And ironically, when the Jesuits began the school in 1829, they were not permitted to charge tuition for for school.
0: So, okay, I want to backtrack again for a second. The qualification you read there was that they had to have a a satisfactory Mm -hmm. command of the language. They had to
1: be able to speak the language, right.
0: That doesn't speak to me of university level, as we would think about it, upper ed, higher ed, continuing education. So in the beginning, was St. Louis Academy more of... A I, secondary school? Yeah,
1: I think it was probably probably a glorified high school, even into the eighteen De Bergs Academy and the Univer and the Jesuits St. Louis College St. Louis University, they operated a high school here uh, until nineteen twenty. I guess it was nineteen twenty four when the high school portion of of the university moved to. The Backer Memorial on Oakland Avenue, where St. Louis High is now, because mm-hmm. the original building was for the Backer family donation there on Oakland. Obviously, it's it's expanded and grown a great deal since then. So, I mean, there were young men coming here as young as nine or ten years old to come to to the college, and they were really in the academy portion, of the high school. And this this was not only true of St. Louis College, St. Louis University, the other Jesuit colleges. I had these high schools associated with them, uh, right. as well. Right. So yeah, they were coming, and it was not unusual in Virginia for them to stay for a year or two years, you know, and because they got they received whatever education their family could afford or right. thought they they needed, and then they would go back to doing whatever they they were doing. And some right. stayed. It's interesting in those early years. Certainly by the late eighteen thirties. Most of the families here in St. Louis were French. Um, we talk about Leclad and Chateau. I mean, We say Leclade and, Chateau. and Chateau. Chateau. But one of my colleagues and friends, Emery Weber, has done a study on this. If you look at the university's early catalogs, there were a significant number of, of French-speaking students from Louisiana territory, not just here in St. Louis, but all over Louisiana territory. And I myself, to give myself a little pat on the back here, I... Was always fascinating. If you look through the the early catalogs from the 1830s and the 40s, and even into the 1850s, and then at Civil War things start to change, and that's a whole other, whole other story. I was always intrigued by the number of Hispanic names among the students at the university, the college, and there were periods there in the well, the late 1840s, early 1850s, where over 10 to 20 percent of the students here at the school, where Spanish was probably their their native language. We have even had a couple of students from, from Cuba. Now, men, most of them were from New Mexico territory, Me- Mexico. You know, St. Louis U was, in many ways, a French bishop, de Bourg, with Belgian Jesuits, with sons of French families here in St. Louis, and then inviting other French and then Spanish speaking uh, young men to come here. Yeah.
0: So this is a tangential question, but what happened to the university during the Civil War years?
1: Well, there was concern uh, because, I mean, Missouri, first of all, slavery was permitted in Missouri. Uh, Missouri was a, was a union state, but just barely. Uh, and, then, and at the beginning of the American Civil War, in May of 1861, there was a a Civil War battle fought at the corner of what is now Grand and Lindell, Grand and Olive, at camp, what was known as Camp Jackson, which was the camp for the Missouri militia at the time, which would have been a Confederate militia. Uh, in any case, during the Civil War, there was concern that the school would, would close, they would be fighting at the school. The university did, did survive, and, and it emerged you know, on the other side, uh, in 1865, you know,
0: corner of Grand and Lindell was held by a Confederate.
1: Well, it was a militia encampment, Camp Jackson, and Claiborne Jackson was the governor of Missouri at that time, and all, and he was, he was a secessionist. He was sympathetic to the Confederacy, and Missouri, particularly along the Missouri River, there were numerous counties where they held, you know, numerous slaves. And and in fairness, yeah. we should say that. When the Jesuits came in 1823, they brought with them six enslaved people yes. to Missouri uh, in 1823, and and they did they did work at the farm in Florissant. Although some of them worked at the university, they, there were six enslaved people who did come from Maryland to uh, to Missouri in, in 1823, and I know the province and the university are are there's there's a project an endeavor to to make sure that the descendants of those six people were uh, recognized and compensated in some way for you know for their contributions to the school and also to the uh, province the the farm in Flores and DeBerg's farm uh, I mean it was a working farm crops and vineyards and tools and all that so there was a lot of work to be done out there yeah. uh, and yeah. unfortunately the enslaved people you know they and some of their descendants had to do uh, we're forced to do that work, which is certainly not something of which we should be proud. But exactly. you know, uh, the history is it is what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, that's. Yet at the same time, you know, here in, in St. Louis, I know there was John John Barry Meacham, who was a African American. He started what he called his freedom schools, in which he would teach uh, black children, because mm-hmm. that was you know that was, according to Missouri state law was forbidden to teach mm-hmm. black young men and women to read or write and, and he conducted these schools and he conducted some of them in the middle of the river on these boats and they called them freedom schools he would teach because in the river that was under federal jurisdiction
0: oh my goodness so much history there yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: well do you have a recommendation for how um, just individuals or the SLU community would best celebrate the birthday of SLU well, this year no I don't year? know I never, I,
1: never, I never thought about that you know uh, November the 16th you know we had, we had talked about this during the bicentennial was getting some kind of a, a plaque marker down at 9th and Washington to mark that site now that's doesn't belong to the university uh anymore and even down uh where Mrs. Alvarez's house I I unfortunately I think Mrs. Alvarez's house would probably be where they built the the bridge over the uh over the highway there um, I think that's be, would be more or less where the house was right there. at that time but uh
0: I think just marking the date and right. remembering that it's a long history and it's right. a humble beginning.
1: Right, it is a very simple beginning. Right. Yeah,
0: right. I think realizing it and honoring it. Right. Right. Is important
1: because yeah, I mean here we are, two hundred three years later. It is impressive longevity. Longevity should count should count for something, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and in all seriousness, it does. It shows a, a commitment to education because that's what De Burgh wanted was to educate these these young people and the Jesuits. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, they took that on. They continued it through the American Civil War, through several world wars and other conflicts, uh, and here we are today.
0: Yeah, and I think even though in its beginnings it wasn't a Jesuit institution, certainly as you're speaking about the history there, Bishop de Berg's vision had to do with education of the whole person and making men and women for others, and that is who we are. That's
1: That's right. That is who we are.
0: Well, thank you, oh, thank Jen, you, Virginia. for Virginia. Yeah, I this enjoyed time. It. And it. it'll be a wonderful celebration of 203 years this
1: that's year. Right. That's 203 years. It's an odd number, but that's, that's good. Yeah, that's all right. Thank <laughs> Very you. Good. Thank you.
0: And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, remember to spread the word about this podcast and keep your eyes and ears open for where the mission is living quietly, but out loud. And you can follow us on our social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram at Slew Jesuit Mission. Take care, and until next time, God bless. Thank you. You can engage the mission intentionally here at SLU, and you can encounter it randomly. But good luck
1: graduating without ever touching it in some way. God bless everyone.